So let me transition into the message. So what I'm about to say has nothing to do with the message, okay? But I need to acknowledge that two of my staff members are clearly delusional this morning with their expectations of the Dallas Cowboys. So we should talk about prayer as you pray for them, all right? Take your Bibles and go with me to the book of Matthew chapter 6. If you happen to find yourself in the city of San Antonio, and especially in downtown San Antonio, you're in for a bit of a, uh, maybe I would say a confusing reality. Now, I know San Antonio, Texas. That's the city in which I was born many years ago now. It's uh, a city that I have family members in. It's the city that Teresa and I historically, especially for 20 years in South Texas, San Antonio was our getaway city, just a couple of three hours or so north of where we lived. And so we had the opportunity many times to go there. Uh, I know San Antonio. But recently, Teresa and I found ourselves in downtown San Antonio. And uh, it is one of those cities now that is uh, gaining in population to the point that it's one of the major population centers in the United States. And so their downtown area, much like ours here, is in this constant state of upgrading and building and all of those kind of things. And so when we found ourselves in downtown San Antonio, for the first time ever for me, I was genuinely lost in downtown San Antonio. Now, I know that for me to admit that means I have to surrender my man card, (laughs) but it is what it is. I knew where we were supposed to be. I knew where I was, at least when I started, I did. But after about 15 minutes of driving around in the downtown area, I had no clue where I was and certainly had no clue how to get to where I needed to go. After those 15 minutes, my co-pilot, Teresa, pulled out her phone. Well, actually, she had been on her phone already, but she decided to go to a GPS program uh, on our app on her phone. And so she said, well, according to the GPS, you need to go there. And at this next intersection, you need to turn left. And she, using that GPS application on her phone, walked me and us to the exact spot that we needed to be. I want you to know that for me that day, I was just on the verge of deciding I wasn't going to be a preacher for about 10 minutes. (laughs) And GPS saved the day. I want to talk to you today about knowing where you are and how to get to where you're supposed to be. I want to talk to you today about having a GPS for your soul. Because as helpful as a GPS app is on your phone that helps you know where you are, first of all, you know, the whole GPS system is a fascinating thing. Those of you in the military understand that probably better than any of the rest of us do. But the GPS system is is an incredibly powerful tool to, first of all, help you know where you are. And then, well, at least if you read it all correctly. And then beyond that, it has the ability, if you know where you are, then you can walk with that GPS system to the exact spot that you need to be. And so if we come to our own personal spiritual lives and our spiritual development, 
We need a GPS for the soul. Let me ask you today, why is prayer so important? Now, in our church, in this series that we're in now, the DNA of a disciple as we're working our way through those eight statements that we made in our vision task force uh, report and the objectives that grow out of that. As a church, we have affirmed that there are eight markers, eight specific traits that Christians, that those who are followers and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ will model in their daily lives. Prayer is one of those. As a matter of fact, I'm taking this eight week series and making it nine because the first of those character traits has two elements in it that I wanted us to make sure that we just dug in on, and that is that we believe that a maturing disciple will engage in daily Bible study and prayer. Last week, we talked about the Bible study part. Today, we talk about prayer. So, why is prayer so important for us? I think that the answer, at least part of the answer to that, is that prayer is a positioning tool. If you want to know where you are in your spiritual life, examine your prayer life. Now, here's my dilemma today. Saying, let's talk about prayer and let's describe something of what prayer is, is like saying, describe the mountain to me. And if I say, describe the mountain to to me, you might say, well, which part of the mountain do you want me to describe? You want me to describe what it's made of? You want me to describe what it looks like? You want me to describe what kind of fauna is on it? You want me to describe what it is at the very peak? You want to talk about what it is at the foothill level? Where, how do you talk about and describe a mountain? The same problem when it comes to talking about and describing prayer. There are so many different facets and elements of what prayer is. So, this is a bit of a challenge for me to do this in about 20 minutes. So, I'll take 40 (laughs) or not. So, for today, I want to say a couple of things. I just want you to know that we're not going to exhaust what prayer is today. What I want to do today is maybe talk a little bit about what it's not And then I want to just kind of nudge you into that daily practice of prayer as a GPS for your soul. Prayer is a positioning tool. We don't always use it that way, but that is one of the ways I would describe it. Sometimes instead of using it as a positioning tool, we use prayer as a hammer And so we go and we figuratively and maybe sometimes as literally as it can be for us, we take that hammer called prayer and we just knock and beat on the doors of heaven trying desperately to get God's attention. That may be true on how we use it, but that's really not the design of what prayer is supposed to be for us. Sometimes prayer is not used as a hammer so much. It's used as a crowbar, and we try to leverage God through prayer. This is that kind of prayer where we make deals with God. Well, you know, God, if you'll just do and you kind of lay out whatever you want him to do, then I'll do, and then you tell him what you're willing to do. So prayer sometimes we use as a hammer, sometimes as a crowbar. You know, one of the examples of that is when I, one of the organizations that I was in in high school, uh, we had this, this tradition 
And the tradition was that before we did any kind of uh, competition, any kind of public presentation of who we were in that particular slice of high school life, we would gather together this group of people, uh, about 300 or so of us, and as we would gather together, I mean from all walks of life and from all levels of high school depravity represented in that group, and before we would go out into some kind of a competition or public display, we would say this prayer together, the Lord's Prayer, as some call it. I didn't understand that at the time, and I was, I was pretty deep on that high school depravity level. I didn't understand why all of a sudden we would throw God in on what we were doing. But I found through the years that a lot of people, a lot of teams, and a lot of groups want to throw in that Lord's Prayer thing as some kind of a way of maybe levering God's, maybe it's, it's a little bit of beating on the doors of heaven. Maybe we have some good reason for doing it, but we don't think about the reason for doing it, which might make it a little bit less um, effective. So, regardless of how we use it, I believe that one of the best ways to describe prayer is that it is a positioning tool for us. Matthew chapter 6 falls right in the middle of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. This is where Jesus took the opportunity on the side of a hill on the northeastern uh, side of the Sea of Galilee and as he gathered his disciples and others there on that hillside, he began to preach to them, to teach them through this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I've said before in this church that I believe that the Sermon on the Mount is the best encapsulated discussion and description of what a mature disciple of Jesus Christ looks like. I think that Jesus gave that sermon as a way of setting the standard out there, not just for those disciples, but for all disciples through all time. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ, these are the things that you will have in your life, these markers, if you will, the Sermon on the Mount. And its thesis is, over in chapter 5, where it says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can't be my disciple or something to that effect. And so what we find then is Jesus, as he unfolds these various things, right in the middle of it, that's no accident, right in the middle of that sermon, he essentially says, let's talk about prayer. And so he tells us about how not to do it. That's the first handful of verses there. But we pick up reading in verse 9, and here's what Jesus says. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The, the positioning tool, the GPS for the soul is prayer. Let me show you how I get that out of here. But before I step into that passage in depth, actually today we'll be just kind of surfing over the top of it, let's, let's talk about how people look at prayer. I have a quote here from Immanuel Kant who uh, I wouldn't normally quote from up here, but uh, he gives us a little bit of an insight into one whole segment of our society. 
Because this whole segment of our society, some of whom are Christians, by the way, or at least call themselves Christians, look at prayer as if it's simply a psychological exercise. Here's what Kant says. It is an interior conversation with oneself. Okay, let me stop for a minute. Let's make sure that we're all on the same page. I don't agree with him. Okay, you with me? So if you're going to shoot me, shoot me for something else, okay? Because I don't agree with him, but he does give us a point of reference that helps us know how people out there think. So he says, prayer is an interior conversation with oneself who supposes himself to be conversing very intelligently with God. It is, and here's a quote, an underscored statement, it is a superstitious error. Now, before you get too mad, let's let that register for a moment how some people view prayer. Feuerbach also comes into this, and he says this, in prayer, man adores his own heart, contemplates his own sentiment as divine being, so therefore prayer duplicates the self in a dialogue with the self. Now, I'm not going to suggest that those two guys and the quotes that we've read from them represent the vast majority of the population of our region, but there would be some out there, maybe even some in here, who hold that prayer is nothing other than just a psychological exercise where essentially we're talking to ourselves. I don't believe that most Christians believe that. I believe that many Christians, maybe most, I don't really know how to even measure that, but I think that many Christians would say, no, that's totally wrong, but they would embrace what I call the cosmic cure-all that is prayer. This is that point of reference to prayer that comes at, uh, comes at us, and, and it takes the form of, of nice little folk religion kind of statements, folk theology kind of statements. Have you ever heard, don't, please don't, don't be the one, and raise your hand and say, I've said that. Okay, I don't want to know that right now. But have you ever heard anybody say, prayer changes things? Well, I think that's well-intentioned, but I don't think it's particularly biblical. Here's, let me show you why. If we say prayer changes things, then the question that I would have is, where's God in that? You see, sometimes practically, we can take the trappings of our faith, we can take the pieces that, that come together to help make what faith is for us, and we can elevate some of those beyond their, their logical or their intended level of importance. So to say prayer changes things doesn't necessarily involve God even. And so we look at the way we pray and how is it that we go to God in prayer. If you were to go back and just map out your prayer life, your topics in prayer over the last week, how many different elements of your prayer life would lean into, God, I need you to do this for me? The cosmic cure-all that says if I need it and I pray it, then it has to happen. One guy, having heard and understood a little bit of the struggle with that statement, prayer changes things, tried to help it out a little bit, and so he modified it. 
And so he said, prayer changes people, and people change things. Well, where's God in that? In his attempt to make it better and more forceful, if you will, he muddied the waters even further. I'm, I'm saying all of this, and I'm not trying to make anybody mad, but I am trying to make sure that we go into this with an understanding that what God says about prayer and the importance of prayer in our lives may not necessarily have anything to do with the way we practice prayer. You see, the cosmic cure-all approach essentially writes God out of it. It is a humanistic approach to what prayer is. If I need it, I'll go to God, either with a hammer or a crowbar, and I will leverage my way to get God to do what I want him to do. So maybe we should pause and say, all right, so does Jesus endorse either one of those or any part of either one of those? Which throws us into this passage a little more clearly, I think. So, is prayer only a psychological exercise? And I think one of the things we would have to stop and do is we would have to stop and say, there is, in fact, psychological benefit for us when we pray. Let me use an example here that I hope will help connect with you a little bit on this. I have a friend um, or an acquaintance who um, was a pastor for a period of time. And God called him out of being a pastor, and so he's a businessman now, probably retired by this time, I guess. But uh, when, when he was a member of our church where I was pastoring, he came to me one day and he said, uh, I want to do some outreach in the neighborhood. And I, <laughs> I said, wait, time out, slow down. You want to what? He said, I want to do some outreach in the neighborhood around the church. I said, Absolutely. And he said, but no, I want you to understand how I'm going to do this and make sure that it's okay with the way the church wants to, wants to function. And I said, okay. He said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go door to door, and I'm going to talk to people. I'm going to try to talk to them about Jesus if I can. But I'm going to talk to them about their needs and where they are. Here's the way I do that. And so he began to explain it to me. And he would go door to door, and he would hand them a, a door hanger. If they weren't there, he would just hang it on the door. If they were there, he would hand it to them. And it had the name and the address of the church. It had the schedule of the church. And then at the bottom of it, it had a little tear-off card. And the top of that card said, how can I pray for you? And as he would go on this door-to-door journey around the church, he said that many times as he knocked on the door, they'd come to the door if they came at all, and they would be resistant and they would be defensive, especially when he said, I'm with such and such a church down the road here, and they would, be, they would almost bristle, many of them, at this person coming, a Baptist person in a town that was largely Catholic, and go in and say, hey, I'm here and I would like to talk to you about our church. And whether they were that or not, he said, when he would get to the point that he would say, I'd also just thank you for giving me your time, but as I leave, is there anything that I could pray for you about? And he said every time he did that, he saw the defenses fall on that person. Even the ones who were the most negative about being uh, there in a situation with a church person, when he said, can I pray for you, they warmed enough to say yes as a matter of fact, and then they would give any number of prayer requests to him. There is, let's not 
let's not be mistaken here, not be naive here. There is an element of our prayer life that gives us peace. This, this fits into that psychological thing a little bit, I think. The reason that I'm okay saying it that way is because there is a psychological part of who you are. There's an emotional part of you, an intellectual part. Those things come together, how you think, how you respond to your environment. All of those kind of things are part of who you are and part of the way God made you. So it only makes sense that when we engage in that activity that God lays out for us as fundamental in the Christian life, that we would find positive effect for that even in our intellectual, emotional, psychological parts of who we are. The, what, the problem is when we get to the point of thinking that it automatically is going to fix everything. Look here where we are in this passage. Let me show you where I'm talking about this could easily become a humanistic thing. In verse 9, it starts out this way. Jesus says, pray this way. And then that first little statement is the first major positioning part of the entire prayer. Our Father in heaven. Literally, it says, our Father, the one who is in heaven. Now, the reason this is important is for us to pause over is because Jesus turns Jewish thinking on its head, Jewish theology on its head. When he talks about God as Father, all of a sudden there are those in that crowd that he's listening to going, he can't talk to God like that or about God like that. God was the one who was the great other. He was the one who was separated. We know from Old Testament studies that even uh, Jews were afraid to pronounce his, his real name, and so they added other things to it so that they wouldn't offend him by mispronouncing his name. But Jesus wades into the whole mix with this communion, intimacy kind of statement about what prayer is. He says, pray like this, our Father, the one who is in heaven. Mark chapter 14, verse 36 gives us a point of reference there because in 1436, here's what we find. It says, uh, and he said, that is Jesus, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Notice that Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, as he's about to go to the cross, he goes to God in prayer, and he amplifies the communion, the relationship, when he says, Abba, Father. We might slang that up a little bit in our terminology and essentially, Jesus says, Daddy. That's offensive to those people around him. Some people would even say that it was blasphemous. Romans chapter 8, verse 15, Paul weighs in on this also, and he's talking about our position with Christ. In verse 15 of chapter 8, he says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have re received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We can see the same thing basically in Galatians chapter 4. I won't take the time to do it now. But what we find with all of that is prayer as it relates to how we go about it gives us the opportunity to step into the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. It's not some psychological exercise. It is communion 
with the living God. That's an incredible statement. We don't have to try to get God's attention. We don't have to go hoping that maybe God might do something to help us. It is that most intimate of relationships, communion with God. It's more than a spiritual placebo. It's community with God. I would say it this way, that prayer is grounded in communion and that we find healing for our tired, ragged souls. You ever get worn out? Certainly physically that applies. How about spiritually? You ever get just totally worn out? How do you pray in those times? 10th Avenue North, it's actually a Christian music group. I like to call them some of my favorite preachers because of the lyrics of their songs historically. They captured something of what I'm talking about here in a song that's entitled Worn. The song is essentially a prayer. But listen to the way they formulate their situation and the way they approach God with it. Part of the lyrics of that song are these. I'm tired. I'm worn. My heart is heavy. You ever pray that way? You ever have occasion to pray that way? They go on to say, my soul feels crushed by the weight of this world. And I know that you can give me rest. So I cry out with all that I have left. Let me see redemption win. Let me know the struggle ends. That you can mend a heart that's frail and torn. That's a positioning prayer. That's a prayer that cries out of the pain and the struggle of this life. And it steps into the throne room of heaven with God himself, who Jesus said we could call Abba, Father. And so in that Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus opens by saying, pray this way, our Father in heaven, he positions us in the most advantageous way we could ever think to be. So prayer is more than a psychological exercise, but prayer certainly has that benefit to us that takes us in the throne room of heaven and know that God listens. What about that cosmic cure-all approach, that humanistic approach that essentially says, let your will be done? No, let my will be done. This is one that gets most of us at some point or another. This type of prayer is the one that engages us with God in a test of wills. This is what I want. This is what I expect. If you listen closely to some prayers, you'll hear some people say, this is what I demand from God. I have three children, and my first son was, well, I think the, ter the term we like to use is he was a strong-willed child. Uh, he grew out of that, and now he's a strong-willed adult. Uh, and uh, I, I, can, I could give you ex 
experience after experience where I watched his mother, Teresa, as not Mother Teresa, but his mother, who is Teresa. <laughs> when I was a youth minister, kids called her Mother Teresa, but um, feel free to do that if you want. Um, but I watched her as she dealt with Brandon. And I mean, as a young guy, little kid, toddler even, there was this test of wills. And she would say to him, no. And he would look at her. If she was, one stands to my, we were at my parents' house and mom had some stuff out that she shouldn't have had out with toddlers around, but she did. And so Brandon just had to touch it. And Teresa was sitting right there next to it. And she said to him, no. And he looked at her and he reached And she said, I'm not going to tell you what else she did. She said, no. And he looked at her, and he reached. And so, a repeat of that. And then she said, I said, no. And he smiled and reached. It's a traumatic day for my child, that one was. Let's be honest. Sometimes that's how we deal with God in prayer, isn't it? God, I need this. I want this. I demand this. This prayer locks that out as an option. Make sure you get that. This prayer locks that out as an option. There are two themes in this model prayer, those verses that I've read already, two different themes. The first one is the godness of God. His Father, He is the one who is in heaven. That is beyond us. He is the great other, in other words. But beyond that, he also, it says, hallowed be your name. Literally translated, that says, let your name or may your name be holified. Question, isn't God's name, his character, already holy? And the answer to that is, yes. Then why would we pray that? And the answer is, it's a positioning tool for us. May my life reflect who you really are. So we have our Father, the one who is in heaven, let your name be holy. And then we have let your kingdom come. That implies the rule of God who is over all. The king's word is the word. And then we have this little thing at the end of that that really challenges all of us. Let your will be done. Not just let it be done, but let it be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, in heaven, only God's will is done. So where does that leave us in this life when we try to come at it and we hold it out as, God, let my will be done? Four different elements in here have to do with who God is and his sovereignty. Three elements in here, that's verses 11 through 13, have to do with us and our need for God. That emphasizes the neediness of us. There is no hint in this prayer that Jesus uses as a teaching tool, there is no hint of bending God's will to mine. All of it is me bending to him. So let me just go out on a limb and say, I suspect that if you have a problem with the sovereignty of God in your life, you're probably not in great communion with him. And so prayer 
is a positioning tool for us. Prayer positions us under the sovereignty of God. It is a GPS for our soul because that's where we figure out in prayer where we really are with him. Am I pushing for me to be on the throne of my life or am I going to let him be? It helps us know where we are, but it also reveals for us where we need to go and how to get there. No wonder our vision task force put at the top of the list that a maturing disciple is one who engages in daily Bible study and daily prayer. Here's a good prayer for you. Really simple. I I stole it from somebody else. If I knew who I stole it from, I'd tell you. So I'm just going to say it's not mine originally. But here's a good prayer for you. Your will, nothing less, nothing more. If you can pray that every day in the face of whatever you're going through, you're in a good position with God. So I started off by asking, why is prayer so important for us? The answer is that it positions us in our relationship with God. It moves me off of the throne. It positions me so that I know the heart of God. And when I know the heart of God, it makes it easier for me to trust God, which makes it easier for me to say, I'm going to let you be God today, as if I really had a choice in whether he's going to be God or not. But I do have a choice of whether he's going to be God in my life today or not. So how's your prayer life? Is it pretty routine? Is it mechanical? Here's the challenging question. Is your prayer life filled with words, or does it have space for listening to God? Wherever your prayer life is today, I'll guarantee you it goes deeper than where you are. I don't care how deep you are, it goes deeper because it's a relationship with the living God. Let me ask you to bow your heads, if you will, please. Go to invitation time. Where are you with God today? That positioning thing that I'm talking about, where are you with that? Do you have that relationship with God through Jesus Christ that gives you the opportunity to commune with him? Or is Jesus just some historical figure, some abstract concept out there because you've never really met him face to face? Do you know this Jesus? If you don't, that's where you start. If you don't have that personal relationship with him that comes as you place your faith in him as your redeemer, the one who who forgives you of your sin, the one who makes your created purpose possible again, that is a relationship with the living God. Do you know Jesus Christ? If not then this invitation time is specifically so that you could have the opportunity to respond to Jesus' invitation to you for forgiveness of sin, for a new start in life, and for an eternity wrapped up in the presence of God. And we invite you to that during this time of invitation. Maybe you're here and you have that relationship settled, but your prayer life, if you have one at all, has gotten pretty dry, pretty routine, and not really all that exciting. You could make that commitment today to turn that back to its appointed purpose, to position yourself with God on a daily basis, to learn and grow as you walk with him. 
Father, we ask you to take this invitation time now, change lives, work in hearts, be glorified in it is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.